How Crazy Ass Tom Cruise and Top Gun Saved America. America needs to get back to meaningless fun, and Top Gun Maverick delivers in colossal doses. In a classic Beavis and Butthead episode, the boys watch a video of U2's One. They hear Bono's lyrics. Is it getting better, or do you feel the same? They see a blurry buffalo running in slow motion through a field of tall grass. Whoa, says Beavis. That's a big dog. Next, shots of the word one, written in various languages, flash on TV, followed by cuts to a still shot of a sunflower field, which zooms out, eventually fading back to the slow-mo buffalo. Is this like a quiz? asks Butthead. This is like school, says Beavis. This means something. Over the weekend, I saw the much-hyped Top Gun Maverick, two hours of badass plane battles. It wasn't art, it didn't mean anything, and it was awesome. I left the theater genuinely sad to be back in 2022 America. In a gutsy call, considering how high-tech the movie's effects and roller coaster direction were, the film opened with a scruffy-looking Tom Cruise, his real-life costume, looking like he'd eaten a canister of happy pills as he delivered a 50s-style apostrophic intro to the long-awaited sequel. Sounding like a proud dad, he told audiences to buckle up for real G's and the most immersive and authentic film experience they could muster. Cut to the most unapologetically corny script ever, but one that works all the way. It's every film cliche in history. It's washed-up hero gets one last chance at glory, meets fulfilling a dying friend's last request, meets hand over your gun and badge. It's a movie about pilots, so the actual line is, you're grounded. Meets slow-running man impossibly escapes fusillade of helicopter-fired automatic weapons. Meets boy and girl right off into the sunset. Is it brainless propaganda? Hell yes! In the one scene where an atavistic sourpuss reflex kicked in for me, Admiral Bo Cyclone Simpson, played by dialed-down Mad Men survivor John Hamm, explained the Top Gun mission. Let's get to the goal. An unauthorized uranium enrichment plant. It was built in violation of numerous NATO agreements. The uranium produced there poses a direct threat to our allies in the region. The Pentagon has given us the task of forming an assault team to destroy it before it is fully operational. If you want to be a dick about it, and apparently at least one reviewer was, you can do the math and conclude the best candidate for the enemy described as Iran, which not only didn't violate our joint agreement with them, but apparently kept adhering to it after we ourselves violated the deal in the Trump years. But the premise is fictional. The landscape ends up looking more like Russia or China. They never come back to the politics. And beyond that, the situation is so totally absurd that you'd have to be nuts to be offended by it. The whole premise is ripped directly from Star Wars anyway, right down to the ticking clock before the deadly weapon situation is fully operational, and the impenetrable enemy air defense whose one fatal mistake is not accounting for the gifted superpilots of our team zigzagging under the radar to bullseye a one-in-a-million shot at blinding speed. It's just like Beggar's Canyon back home, or in this case, just like the dartboard at the famous I-Bar Navy hangout in San Diego, where Cruz's Pete Mitchell watched flyboys throw bullseyes one after another, even with hands over their eyes. How accurate does the real attack team have to be? Your target is in an area of less than three meters, the Top Gun pilots are told solemnly in training, at which every last perfect-looking actor exhales in relief. That's a whole meter wider than the Death Star shot. The target area is only two meters wide, General Dodonna said back in 1977. The action movie illusions are this bald throughout, and you're all for it. 
The pre-flight ritual dialogue between groundbound Bernie Hondo Coleman, I don't like that look, Mav, and airspeed record smasher Mitchell, it's the only one I've got, feel shot for shot like LeVon Helm's Ridley character ritualistically offering Sam Shepard's Chuck Yeager his last stick of Beeman's before he broke the airspeed record in The Right Stuff. Ed Harris, who's in both movies, does a great job in Maverick of pretending he's never seen a hot shit test pilot defy orders, blast past an impossible mock barrier, incinerate a gazillion dollar plane, and show up in the next scene walking in a daze with a grease-covered face after ejecting at high altitude. The only other time my cerebral cortex even flickered during Top Gun Maverick was during the hilarious swipe at Lockheed Martin screenwriters inserted mid-movie. The whole film is a Boeing ad, so it made sense, but it was still genius. In fact, the tale of an aging but still impossibly fit Cruz Mitchell being called back into service for a crucial mission after being deemed a dinosaur by colleagues is a naked metaphor for the career path of the movie's other main character, the Boeing F-18. In real life, the Super Hornet has been ridden out of the defense budget two years running, only to be reinserted at the last minute by congressional rabbis, the legislative equivalent of Mitchell's sole friend high in the Navy brass, Falkelmer's Admiral Tom Iceman Kazansky, who keeps intervening to prevent Cruz's decommissioning. Given all that backstory, the Boeing-Lockheed subplot works as priceless corporate pettiness. When Cruz Mitchell is asked to assess the low feasibility of the proposed mission, he goes out of his way to dump on Lockheed Martin's next-generation F-35. Sir, normally, with the F-35s flying in silent mode, this would be child's play, but GPS jamming throws it away. I think it's achievable with an F-18. This line apparently generated controversy among people who care about fighter jets, and I've since seen humorously earnest articles about how a Top Gun Maverick featuring F-35s would have been boring because the plane kills too easily, from a distance. It doesn't matter. The rest of the movie is gasp-inducing shots of actors and actresses perched on vomit edge as they pilot fearsome-looking planes through supersonic versions of the World War II dogfights that of course never happen anymore. It's not an accident that Mitchell's downtime hobby involves working on a P-51 Mustang Cruz actually owns, or that he and Jennifer Connelly end the film by literally riding off into the sunset in the thing. The audio booms out of this world and really makes the movie in parts, particularly the clang, swerve, clang scenes where Mitchell slams the stick as he grimaces his way through the test course. The plot is so vague and trite and so nakedly an ad for military hardware that it's impossible to be mad at. It's just fun. How many things in the last seven, eight years in America have just been fun? I wasn't a fan of the original Top Gun. In fact, the only scenes I could even remember from the first movie were the righteous brother bar serenade of Kelly McGillis and the death of Maverick's mustache-wielding wingman, Goose. And when Top Gun Maverick replayed the latter scene, I realized I didn't even remember that correctly. I'd filed away the far more ridiculous Hot Shots version of Goose's death. He's called dead meat in the spoof, where his pin runs out before takeoff. But no problem, he tells his loving wife. He'll sign his life insurance when I get back, and mistaken it for the real thing. When I went back and looked that scene up, I realized it, too, had a Lucky Gum reference, making the heroic test pilot movie confusion total. When the original Top Gun came out in the 80s, America's culture war dynamic was still plenty hot, but ran in a different direction. Anti-Reagan malcontents, I was one, stewed over the Hollywood-Pentagon partnership and quietly seethed at the film's makers for plunging millions into a script that read like a two-hour, not-just-a-job-and-adventure Navy ad ridden over a single Burger King lunch. 
The legendary 500% recruitment increase the film supposedly triggered is apocryphal, by the way. That movie did monster box office, grossing $357 million, but even in hindsight, I'm not convinced it was all that. Val Kilmer's abs were probably more of a draw than the dogfight scenes. I'd argue it wasn't near the second-best Kilmer movie of the period, being clearly behind Top Secret and Real Genius. If drunk enough, I might even argue for Willow. Moreover, the era was packed with other great movies like Blade Runner and Full Metal Jacket, so there were reasons to scoff at a jingoistic cruise vehicle shot with a Navy PR officer on set with veto power over its wooden script. Fast forward 36 years. Not only are we on the brink of what feels like civil war, and as of this week flirting with real war with two different superpowers, we're nearly a decade into a crippling fund shortage. We have complexes about every holiday from Christmas to Thanksgiving to the 4th of July. The president has been severely disordered or clinically dead for at least six years. And the most famous stand-up performance in a generation involved Chris Rock getting man-slapped by the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. America used to be a global leader in brainless entertainment, particularly featuring explosions, boobs, and weightlifters. But since Trump's election, Hollywood's been in a funk and spent years trying to bury its baser instincts and reinvent itself as highbrow and caring. This resulted in a thousand iterations of self-serious films straining to make the miserable entertaining. Bill Maher's take on the perfect modern Oscar hopeful was the immigrant who shit in a coffee can. Of all the negative byproducts of Trump's election, one of the most subtly destructive was alienating America from the one thing we've consistently done well, the lowest common denominator. For no good reason, politics has made a big chunk of the country wary of cheese whiz, mud wrestling, commercials about pickup trucks carrying other pickup trucks up mountains of boulders, and a hundred other mindless awesome things in our blood. This country sucks at highbrow. We're great at stupid, and since there's nothing more stupid than stupid highbrow, we've spent the last half decade exporting the most embarrassing conceivable content on a grand scale. This has just made everybody, left and right, more uptight and pissed at each other. When we get back to embracing shark panics, hang in there baby office posters, and weightlifters models blowing each other out of the sky with billion dollar weapons, my guess is we'll all start feeling better. Thank you, Tom Cruise, you lunatic. You've helped the healing begin. Thanks for listening to the audio version of this article. For more, visit taibi.substack.com.